0: Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, the Emergencies Act inquiry.
1: I suppose we would have given more credibility to the information.
0: Why did Ottawa police ignore intelligence warnings about the convoy protest? We'll examine testimony provided today by the acting deputy chief. Also.
2: The government simply cannot compensate every single Canadian.
0: Stark assessments from the finance minister. What should Canadians prepare themselves for in the months ahead? This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. A failure to appreciate, that is how Ottawa's Acting Deputy Chief of Police describes the situation. Local authorities in the city failing to appreciate intelligence that warned them the convoy protests would be more than a weekend affair. It is just the latest revelation out of the public inquiry looking into the invocation of the Emergencies Act testimony that builds on a story of chaos within police ranks as the protest became an occupation. Take a listen.
3: Now in hindsight, what would you have done differently in this planning phase?
1: Um, I suppose we would have given more credibility to the information and intelligence telling us that there was a faction that we're planning on staying for a much longer period of time.
3: And there was also the
4: issue, was it not Deputy Chief, that there were some, uh, there was uh, a lot of uh, people within the Ottawa Police Service who who disliked the Chief and were not not very happy with the Chief's leadership, is that fair to say?
1: Um, There was definitely some dissension and I don't know what all the reasons for leaving were but it was a... uh, uh, Time where I would say we were pretty uh, divided, exhausted.
0: Joining us now is security analyst Michael Kempa, who is also a professor of criminology at the University of Ottawa. Michael, thanks for joining us. Thank you. So I do want to begin with the comments that we heard today from the Acting Deputy Chief of uh, Ottawa Police, that uh, they should have paid closer attention to the intelligence. Given what happened, how police responded during the protest, are you surprised to learn that They just did not give that intelligence greater weight.
4: I'm actually not surprised. And I know that sounds counterintuitive, but it's for the reason that in the old paradigm of security, cities have been very adept at managing large protests that didn't stay for a long time, that were relatively peaceable, very much drawing from the playbook that they had, using templates, using traffic control and not necessarily anticipating major problems. Now we live in a world where hindsight is 2020. We are aware that massive groups of people can raise millions of dollars and use things like trucks and heavy machinery to bring a city to its knees. All policing responses moving forward will be intelligence driven. I am certain that they will pay much closer attention to these reports in the future.
0: So that may change the path going forward, but, you know, we're also learning that there was great division within the Ottawa police in, in terms of to how to respond to the protest. And to that, I do want to play a bit of what we heard from the former chair of the Ottawa Police Services Board. Let's take a listen.
1: There was what I would describe as some sort of insurrection from within that was happening. And there... There was always um, some tension in the ranks with Chief slowly, right from the beginning. The honeymoon for Chief slowly in this town was short-lived.
0: Now that was Diane Deans and she goes on to say that she felt that the Chief never really had the full support of the rank and file, not even the support of senior officers. If that's true, what is your response? Does that explain to you, again, the actions that we saw from Ottawa police during the protest?
4: It does, to a a great extent, and it's clear that Diane Deans uses the word insurrection. That's very harsh as a word. There were many layers of conflict between Peter Slowly as chief, uh, apparently his executive, the rank and file, and the police federation, what people know as the union. On the one hand, there was conflict over uh, Peter Slowly's leadership style. We heard that yesterday from Diane Deans, there were leaks to the CBC that he could be Uh, very forceful or tyrannical in his dealings with underlings. We heard some confirmation of that from Trish Ferguson today. We'll wait to hear what Peter Slowley himself and Deputy Steve Bell has to say about that. But even deeper, when you bring in an external police uh, candidate as chief with a change agenda, there will be people within the organization that feel they've been passed over. There will be people who do not want to change their organization. There will be resentment. In the particular case now of this convoy and dealing with it, there was also a conflict between people like Trish Ferguson and Pat Morris, the head of intelligence for OPP, who were very much in favor of a PLT, a police liaison team mediation approach to dealing with protesters and an enforcement approach, which was favored by Peter Slowly and others within the OPS. Now. All of this was happening in real time, and they collapsed upon one another. It made for a very slow and sticky situation between those different policing organizations, between the police, the board, and the city, and within the Ottawa Police Service itself.
0: Now, you have said that given what the situation had descended into, that you supported the invocation of the Emergencies Act. How do you feel about that assessment now?
4: I still feel that although there were many authorities that exist on paper that should have been mobilized, things that could have been done at the level of the city of Ottawa, things that should have been done at the level of the province, we could have headed this problem off long before we ever got to the need to invoke the Emergencies Act. But it seems given the lack of ability of the police, the security agencies, the levels of government to coordinate through the ordinary avenues that the Emergencies Act was necessary to get the situation back under control. I'm very cognizant that the head of security for the OPP said there was no actual threat to national security that he could discern. He did, however, say there was the potential threat to national security. There was a threat to public safety. There was a threat to officer safety, and it seems that so far, the ordinary links in the chain of civil institutions were not up to dealing with the task. I don't think it'll be a strong endorsement of the Emergencies Act. It was necessary by default, I believe. But we'll wait to see more evidence. I could very well be wrong.
0: Mm -hmm. And to that more evidence, I'm wondering uh, what you want to hear next, from whom you're hoping to hear next. Is there anyone that stands out for you?
4: Yes. Yes. I think whenever people are watching, I would say if you want real insights into where this thing is going, listen to the questions that are asked by Justice Rouleau himself. Yesterday at the end of Superintendent Morris's testimony, the head of OPP security, Rouleau asked a great question. He said, why was the OPP, a provincial agency, leading the national intelligence effort? In other words, what was CSIS and the RCMP doing? Why were you leading it? And the OPP representative very tellingly said, well, we were leading it because nobody else was. So that either means that the RCMP and CSIS had incomplete intelligence efforts, or one way or another, what they were doing was not being properly shared with OPP. So I'm very keen to hear what the RCMP and CSIS have to say about the potential threat to national security, whether they have the same assessment as the OPP, And if they have a different assessment, why it seems like people have essentially different views within the same overall system.
0: Michael, great insight. Thank you for this. Really appreciate the time. Thank you kindly. That's Michael Kempe. A date for the fall economic update has yet to be announced but ahead of that statement we're getting a very clear picture right now from the finance minister that there will be some belt tightening in the coming months. Take a listen.
2: The fact is that the government simply cannot compensate every single Canadian for every single additional cost imposed by elevated global inflation. If we were to try to do that, we would be pouring fuel on the inflationary flames. We would just be making the Bank of Canada's job harder
5: and ensuring that inflation lasted longer and that rates went up even higher.
0: So, some lean months ahead for both Canadians and the federal government. And to share their thoughts, we are now joined by Liberal commentator Jeff Turner, Conservative commentator Tim Powers, and NDP commentator Kim Wright. Nice to see the three of you.
3: Nice to see you, Michael.
0: So, Jeff, Mr. Turner, I'm going to begin with you here. Uh, Why is the Deputy PM making these public signals now? You know, they they began this fall session talking about how they're going to be there for Canadians, introducing measures uh, for those who are struggling, but now, this statement, these statements of recent uh, days, and it really seems like a hard slam of the brake.
2: Yeah, I think so we're about a month away from the fall economic update that traditionally happens in mid-November, and so it's very normal for a finance minister to begin uh, either road testing or previewing the themes and and subjects that you are likely to see in that document. And so that's what we've been seeing from the finance minister in this case and the messages around in particular uh, thoughts of how to support Canadians through, uh, I think, the crisis that she just ably described in that clip you showed. Uh, This is a global crisis in particular fueled by the war of aggression by Russia and Ukraine uh, that is having a particular impact on food and energy prices, which are rippling all the way to a consumer's kitchen table and gas tank. And so, as she said in her clip, it is not possible for the government to make Canadians whole on that basis. And to do so, would, in fact, fuel that inflationary fire. So they have, as you said, Michael, taken the steps of uh, providing rent relief for low-income households where rent is a struggle. They have provided dental care for children and youth under the age of 12, and they have provided uh, other measures that are targeted to people who will be struggling the most in that context, and that is the right thing to do and will have a lower inflationary impact than providing blank checks basically to all people uh, to offset those higher costs. So I think it's a a prudent approach there. And I think we're starting to see uh, just the preview that these are really extraordinary times. These are very difficult times. We're on the precipice of, perhaps uh, an economic shock on the back end of the inflation crisis we've been going through for the last year. Mm-hmm. And uh, nobody quite knows how that's going to go. So prudence is the name of the game. And, uh, and spurring our economy in the smartest ways we have available to us is a prudent growth strategy going forward.
0: Tim, what's your reaction to that? Because to hear it from the Conservative leader, uh, certainly yesterday, he was making the argument, this is more than just the, the impacts of, of global pressures. This is mm-hmm. also choices that the Liberal government has made. So what's your reaction to that?
3: well it's pre-positioning called cya and the government has a lot of covering to do Uh, they want to make sure that the audience and jeff is right in one broad perspective and that is look it's pretty normal regardless of party for a finance minister in the fall to set expectations be they high or low this government though has always had a bit of a challenge keeping expectations low even in difficult times michael what i found fascinating about kushia friedland's uh, comments to your point about uh, Pierre Polyev, she's almost acknowledging what Polyev has been arguing, that we can't spend the way we've been spending. Well, yes, as Jeff did, she makes the argument that uh, you know the inflationary pressures are coming from elsewhere, but there's some argumentation out there to say, well, that's not entirely the case. Uh, what's fascinating for me though, is what's the end game here? So politicians don't precondition unless they have a sense of where they're going to go. And this used to happen a lot in the Martin days. Uh, You know, the whole, I'm focused on this part of the body today. The whole backside is out of what they (laughs) used to say Uh, in a much more more eloquent language. And then all of a sudden, it wouldn't be quite as bad come budget time in April or May. I think the finance minister is hoping that's the case. Whether that will be the case, we shall see. But at least right now, she can say to Canadians, it's bad out there. And the last point I'd make is she, by acknowledging that they can't spend as much, may also be trying to take that weapon away from uh, Polyev, who has been clubbing the government with that message for the last number of months. Mm -hmm. Kim, uh,
0: what's your take? Because, you know, the comments from Ms. Freeland, they do come after the GST rebate bill uh, gets passage in the House, after the whole Commons votes uh, in favor of having grocery prices examined. Add to that the dental program outlined in the deal with the NDP. Is that the limit? of the government concern, does that uh, concern you in any way that they're not doing more?
5: Well, let's take a step back and as uh, viewers have noted, my favorite phrase around budgets and finances. Show me your budget and I'll show you your values. So when we talk about what could be in the fall economic statement and in the budget in the new year, uh, you know, fundamentally, there are lots of things they can do. And this deal, the supply and confidence motion with the New Democrats is actually what Jeff was alluding to, which is the GST rebate, the dental plan and a whole host of other things that thank goodness the New Democrats are pushing for things that matter to Canadians. And so we'll see this coming over the next few months. What else comes forward in that deal? What I see Christian Freeland trying to do is, please stop asking for more things because I'm not gonna spend any more money on you. I think she's frequently had her emphasis on the incorrect things. And that's again, show, you, show me your values. Can we do things on the environment? Can we make sure that children under the age of 12 have dental care and God knows parliamentarians can can get can have it why can't children um those are the kinds of value questions we're going to see over the coming months and i think that this is Krista freeland's repositioning free of please don't ask me for any more things but there are lots of things the government can and should be getting involved in uh and you know tax cuts for ceos is not really one of them
0: Okay, so we keep talking about the the, the fall economic uh, statement. Let's uh, talk about what Freeland's comments have to say about that a bit more. What are your expectations at this point then? What do you think should be in it? Uh, Jeff, I'll begin with you.
2: So I think we, what we're seeing um, is potentially a very small pivot by this government back into an economic message, and I think that is uh, obviously speaking to the anxieties of of uh, people and businesses now on how the situation that's unfolding is going to to play out. I think we have seen the wrong way of approaching this. Uh, most recently, out of the UK, including today, I'm sure everybody's been riveted by this. You know, the populist approach of of taking maybe you know measures that are not well thought through, but that seem good, uh, and and right away way, it doesn't matter whether it's politically popular or not, the markets spoke very clearly on that. And so, you know, part of that restraint message is also, we've seen what happens if we if we are not doing things in a smart and targeted way. Um, and in terms of the broader economic statement and in that sort of pivot to a more economic message, you know, we're seeing a lot more discussion about how the really extraordinary times we're living in will require really extraordinary changes in the way that we trade with our partners and those who are perhaps less than partners to, to our values and to our objectives in the, in the global sense of, of a, a more harmonious world and, uh-huh. and a greener and cleaner world. So I think you'll see a lot of those types of things. The other thing that, uh, you know, I, I do quite a lot of natural resources work and it's really interesting to yeah. see how uh, how much government is really trying to understand and adjust to the new reality that the Biden administration has put down with their Inflation Reduction Act that significantly enhances uh, subsidies and tax credits and, and other sort of incentives for all manner of clean investment, whether that's electric vehicles and batteries, hydrogen production, carbon sequestration, all manner of things. And every yeah. country around the world didn't see that actually being passed and it got passed and now canada has to catch up to that to uh, to maintain competitiveness
0: on those important investments okay tim what about you expectations uh wants in the uh the statement the update
3: well it just covered a few let me add two i guess michael uh one's on healthcare, right um so if the government is making the argument that they they do we want to care for the most vulnerable we all know the stories across the country and live them of how bad the healthcare system is we know the provinces have been looking for more investment over the last uh, decade, uh, but more particularly the last two years, and there have been this fight back and forth. Do the feds do anything on this now because uh, with a shrinking economy, health challenges are gonna increase. Second one is um, diving into an area Jeff mentioned. They fueled and funneled a lot of the programs that help people in COVID through an increase in natural resource revenue. That increase in natural resource revenue is not going to decline uh, at least in the immediate term, and particularly if you look at what happened recently in Newfoundland and Labrador, their, their revenues are up because of their oil royalties. So where do the oil royalties go this time, if not to emergency support programs? That, for me, will be fascinating to watch because that does give them a bit of room to help people if they want to help people. Yeah,
0: a bit of room, uh, as you say, potentially. And Kim, uh, you, you heard Jeff mention what happened in the United States with the Biden administration, uh, those types of incentives. Is that what you're looking for now in this update, this statement?
5: What I'm actually looking for is to to really unlock the housing portfolio for affordable and attainable housing. They can do that with municipalities. They can actually empower CMHC to uh, loosen up some of those uh, really tight purse strings they seem to be clutching onto uh, around affordable housing and new affordable housing and new units for vulnerable sectors. Uh, Getting those things built and not just more press releases, that will actually start to unlock that housing supply crunch that we're seeing in every jurisdiction, large and small across the country. I also think, and I know this is a bit pie in the sky, but I've got a platform, so I might as well throw it out here, uh, which is, uh, you know, there was always that when Harper got rid of the 2% on HST, municipalities said, hey, we can actually make really good use of this for infrastructure, for housing, all sorts of things maybe we can start to finally play around with that and actually make it be meaningful on the backs of Canadians uh, and not just, you know, something that sounded really good on a, on a press release.
0: Okay, uh, listen, stay, stay there. We're, gonna, we're done our Canadian portion of this discussion right now. But, you know, Jeff, you mentioned uh, everyone uh, having eyes on 10 Downing Street t- today. And for those that missed it, take a listen. The resignation of the British Prime Minister.
1: <laughs> I came into office at a time of great economic and international instability. Families and businesses were worried about how to pay their bills. Putin's illegal war in Ukraine threatens the security of our whole continent. And our country has been held back for too long by low economic growth. I was elected by the Conservative Party with a mandate to change this. We delivered on energy bills and on cutting national insurance. And we set out a vision for a low-tax, high-growth economy that would take advantage of the freedoms of Brexit. I recognise, though, given the situation, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. I have therefore spoken to His Majesty the King to notify him that I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. This morning I met the Chairman of the 1922 Committee, Sir Graham Brady. We've agreed that there will be a leadership election to be completed within the next week. This will ensure that we remain on a path to deliver our fiscal plans and maintain our country's economic stability and national security. I will remain as Prime Minister until a successor has been chosen. Thank you.
0: So Liz Truss is gone, resigning after 45 days in office, the shortest term for a prime minister in British history. Uh, I'm wondering, anything stand out for you guys? Any lessons that might be learned? Uh, we've not a lot of time, but Jeff, very quickly.
2: just what a shame not because i'm a big supporter of her but it's just it's unfortunate to see uh, a political career end like that Uh, i think as i said earlier it's it's a demonstration of the power of populist messages to not translate into good policy in fact can potentially ruin an economy if you're not careful about it and i think at the end of the day she said she's not able to implement the mandate she has well that mandate's pretty impossible because i think they've locked themselves into really bad economic situation with the brexit brexit by the way that was championed by conservatives across canada and i think was a horrible mistake for that country, and now they are paying the repercussions of that horrible mistake.
0: Tim?
3: Michael, the betting line is you'll last longer in your role than Liz trusted in hers. <laughs> so I'm, I'm with you. I don't think you're going to be replaced by a head of lettuce, uh, and Peter's not going to make a comeback. I, I, I agree with everything Jeff said. Look, uh, populist quackery does not make good governing. Canadian populists who seek to appeal to... Um, The wild tranche out there that believes it's easy to run governments, pay attention.
0: Yeah, okay. I I better outlast that because I have a mortgage to pay. Uh, Kim, (laughs) what about you? Any lessons stand out?
5: There's a couple of parts. And really, around that whole populist message, maybe we need to start going back to delegated conventions because these one member, one Mm. vote systems in the UK and in Canada seem to be uh, unleashing the quackery that then is undercut by their own caucuses. Maybe there's some sort of a Tinder profile we can get for conservative leaders. I don't know. But definitely we need to go back to uh, delegated conventions here. And, and, you know, mistrust will be known for having the shortest tenure of any PM, but also the fact that a quarter of that was taken up by the public mourning of Her Majesty's yeah, passing. So, it's going to be uh, you know some therapy sessions for mistrust after this. But the question becomes, what comes next, and what does that mean for the rest of the world? Because they're all watching.
0: Could you imagine a conservative Tinder? You'd be swiping right throughout the whole <laughs> throughout the whole experience. You you
3: pick kale, Boston. I mean, there's so well, many I, choices. So,
5: so many. many. You look, okay. you, I mean, you look at it in Canada, you've got you know Andrew Shear, then Aaron O'Toole, and goodness knows how long Pierre Poliev goes without him, you know, knifing his own leadership, I guess. And then you have all of the mis- missteps of uh, Danielle Smith already. Um, you know, there's a lot, uh, lot to unpack. But uh, yes, we need to uh, look at what that looks like.
0: Okay, okay, that was like the final punch there from Kim. But very quickly, a pop quiz for the three of you. Uh, I'm going to ask for. There we go. Which prime minister? had the shortest time in office here in Canada. Kim Campbell. Nope.
3: No, John Turner, John Turner. Turner. Oh,
0: you, you know what, you've gone three, two. There's one that actually had a shorter run. Charles Tupper, Charles Tupper, 69 days in 1896.
3: Oh, that's why you, the lettuce won't replace you, Michael. You know these facts.
0: <laughs> Only because I have access to Wikipedia. Uh, listen, guys, thank you very much for this. Really appreciate the, uh, appreciate the time today.
5: Thank you. Thank you.
0: you. Jeff Turner, Tim Powers, and Kim Wright. (laughs) And that is primetime politics for tonight. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. I'm Michael Serapio. We'll see you again tomorrow.